We're continuing our look at the prophet Zechariah this morning. As uh, we look at the eight night visions that open the book, we're going to read from Zechariah chapter 4 and the fifth night vision. Zephaniah is not quite Zechariah, just two books over. And. All right, Zechariah chapter 4. We'll read the whole chapter. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power. But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Uh, so very interesting uh, <clears throat> vision. We're going to get into it and try our best to uh, understand it. As there, there are some questions about what is the significance of it all, but um, we get the main point as uh, we, will, we will look at it. But let's pray, and we'll begin our look at this vision and the ones that follow. Oh, our Father, we do thank you for your grace and for your love. We thank you that you are our God, and that you have reconciled us to yourself and our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O Lord, that you would illumine our hearts and our minds as we come to study your word this morning. Give us your wisdom to know the truth, that the truth may enable us to walk according to your will and to honor you in all the ways in which you call us to do so. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So a reminder that we are going through the eight night visions that begin. These are apocalyptic visions. 
visions that are very symbolic in nature. They are not representing actual physical events that are happening in the world at large, but they are symbolic representing spiritual realities. So they are true, but they're not meant to represent an actual physical event in history um, insofar as what they're portraying and picturing. And these visions have angelic interpreters to help us understand the visions and give meaning to the symbolism that is found in them. So we've looked at the first four, focusing on the Lord as the king who is looking at the whole world and is bringing about a restoration of his people, uh, but also judgment on those who have afflicted them. Uh, And then we looked also the fourth vision and spent a lot of time on that last week with this wonderful picture of justification where we see Joshua clothed in these filthy garments that are then taken away from him. He is declared, well, these new garments are put upon him, uh, and he is declared righteous even though he had been uh, filthy, and this was the justification of Joshua, but also of the people at large, uh, God showing the work that he would do for them in that day, and ultimately the work that he is going to do through Christ for all who call upon his name. And this then brought us, brings us to the fifth vision, which is where we began here in chapter 4 this morning. And like the previous vision, this one takes place in a temple context. Uh, so the vision in chapter 3 is Joshua standing in the temple, ministering as high priest before the Lord. This is also taking place in the temple. But whereas the previous vision focused on the high priest as one of the leaders of God's people, this vision focuses on Zerubbabel. If you remember, Zerubbabel is the governor. He is the one who led the people of Judah back to the land. Uh, He is a descendant of David, uh, who is now the chief government official over the people, though he is not serving as king. And so the vision, as we have seen, pictures preeminently a lampstand with seven branches, and this is similar to the one that is found, or actually the many, I believe there are actually seven that are found in the temple. In the tabernacle, there was only one lampstand, uh, but the temple sort of built things out and made them more spectacular, and so uh, there were seven lampstands in uh, the temple, and these lampstands, if you've seen, likely you've seen a picture of a menorah, Uh, And that's exactly what the lampstand in the temple was, uh, was like exactly what it's meant to be, uh, what we're meant to think of when we think of the lampstand in the context of the temple or tabernacle. Um, And the reason why we're familiar with this is the, the holiday of Hanukkah is about something that happened during the time of the intertestamental period when the Maccabeans, who were revolting against the Greeks, Uh, particularly Antiochus Epiphanes, who had introduced much idolatry and was seeking to really stamp out the true religion of God in that time. Uh, One of the things that they were trying to do, they were trying to keep the lampstand burning in the temple, and they ran out of oil before the lampstand. And uh, miraculously, the lampstand kept burning for, um, I forget how long it was, but... They didn't have any oil to keep feeding it, but it just kept burning and burning and burning, and that's what 
uh, ultimately Hanukkah commemorates uh, as they saw that as a sign of God's favor and it did lead to them uh, gaining victory over the uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and the Greeks. Um, nonetheless, this, this lampstand is a little bit different. It is meant to evoke the pictures of what we find in the temple, but it's a little bit different. There's this great bowl that's at the top of this lampstand that makes it different from the one that we find in the temple. Uh, why that difference is there, I can't, I can't say, but uh, nonetheless, there is a, a difference for us to observe, even though it's meant for us to evoke uh, the vision of the lampstands that we find in the temple. <clears throat> so we see the, uh, this lampstand with seven branches similar to the temple, uh, but also two olive trees that are feeding oil into it so that it can continually burn. Uh, so the kind of oil that was often used for the burning of lamps, olive oil, uh, these trees are giving it the fuel that the lamp needs to burn in the vision. And so in interpreting the vision, we do have some explanation as to what these things signify. The seven lamps are identified as the seven eyes of God that go throughout the earth and the olive tree as two anointed ones is what the ESV and many translations say, but literally sons of oil uh, who stand before God. Uh, so those are, that's what they signify and now we have to unpack exactly what, what that means. Uh, so first of all, concerning the idea of the eyes of God that are going throughout the world. Well, God's eyes going throughout the world are given to strengthen those who serve God in truth. This is something, we see this imagery and language used in the book of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9. <clears throat> I guess let's give a little bit of context before we get there. This is actually said in relationship to Asa, who had been a king who had relied on the Lord, but who turned from the Lord in his last days. And so beginning in verse 7, At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria... And do not rely on the Lord your God. The army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Uh, we were, or were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. And so there's the purpose of the eyes of the Lord going to and fro throughout the Lord. Strong support to those who are blameless toward him. Uh, and then Asa is upbraided for not actually trusting the Lord, uh, even though he was near at hand to deliver him. Uh, and so this is indeed what we would think, see to be the purpose here. Also, as uh, we had a question at the end of last time, because there was mentioning uh, in chapter 3, a stone that is given to Joshua with seven eyes, 
that are on it as well. The eyes of, um, I don't know if it says the eyes of the Lord. Yeah, it just says seven eyes engraved um, upon it. And I would argue these are the, it's the same picture in both cases. The seven eyes are the seven eyes of the Lord. Uh, seven representing completeness is kind of the same thing if you're familiar with Revelation where it talks about the seven spirits that are before the throne of God, which indicates the Holy Spirit, but seven is the number of completeness, uh, hence the seven days of the creation week, bringing everything to completion. Uh, so this seven, these seven eyes are what is pictured here, both for Joshua in the previous vision and for Zerubbabel uh, in this vision, indicating that God is there to strengthen them in the work that he has called them to do, uh, that he is the one who is enabling them and overseeing their work. He sees all the things that go on in the world, and he gives them strong support. So that's the significance of the seven, uh, the seven bowls on the lampstand, the seven lips, seven bowls on the lampstand, and in the case of the vision. Now we get to the two anointed ones or the two sons of oil. And here I'm going to give you my interpretation. I will admit I'm in a minority here, and it's very possible that the other interpretations are, are correct, but my best at trying to understand this passage leads me in the direction that I'm going to highlight. Uh, so the two sons of oil are often thought to be Joshua and Zerubbabel, which makes makes sense in the context. Joshua was just in the previous vision. Zerubbabel is in this vision. Um, and this would be them representing the anointed offices of priest and king. Uh, this is why this is usually translated instead of sons of oil, anointed ones, um, which is not necessarily a bad translation. I'm just bringing out the oil for the point of the fact that these olive trees are, uh, are siphoning oil into the lamp in the in the vision, and so it's making a very clear, direct connection there to these two that are identified as sons of oil or anointed ones and uh, the olive trees in that regard. Um, and this makes sense because anointing literally has to do with the fact that one has had anointing oil put on one's head, and they're being set apart unto the Lord for his special service. So kings were anointed, priests were specially anointed, Prophets, at least in some circumstances, uh, we don't necessarily know in every circumstance, there's not a command for prophets to be anointed, but they were un at least anointed in some, in some regard. And certainly we find this then being translated to our understanding of Christ, who is, and the word Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which literally means anointed one. Uh, so Christ is the one who is the, our prophet, priest, and king. He is the one who is the tr has the true anointing of God to carry out God's purposes in the world. Uh, and this then is why these two are often identified with uh, these two sons of oil or two anointed ones here in this passage. However, I think there is a little bit of difficulty in identifying them in this way. First of all, this vision is about the message that is given to Zerubbabel about the fact that God will accomplish his purpose to rebuild the temple, not by human might, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Given that that is the case, 
Um, <clears throat> and also that this is about uh, the, uh, the Spirit's power and message and that Revelation 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 4, speaks in a very similar way to describe two prophetic witnesses. I'm going to argue that we should identify the two trees as Haggai and Zechariah who are anointed for this purpose. So let's look at Revelation chapter 11. Uh, we'll read the first four verses, not just verse 4, to get us a sense of what's being talked about here. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And then it goes on to talk about their ministry a little bit, but we see that similar, uh, that similar imagery. Now, we actually had this discussion a few weeks ago. Just because Revelation is using similar imagery doesn't mean it has to control the way that we read Zechariah, but I do think it is informing us of the way that we should look at this. The two witnesses are ministers of the word in Revelation. They are proclaiming the word of God to an unbelieving, uh, an unbelieving people, calling them to faith and repentance, and uh, they're not able to be withstood. So given, given that context, but also the context here that the message is about Zerubbabel being strengthened, it doesn't make sense then for him to be one of the trees that is siphoning oil, being essentially the fuel into the seven eyes that are supposed to be strengthening him for the work that he's supposed to do. Um, so I'm hoping you're following the, the rationale of why I'm saying this. I, I don't think this works. It also is difficult to work out in that Zerubbabel technically is not an anointed one. He is not king. He is a descendant of David. And we see him as falling in. Yes, he's carrying on the Davidic line, but at no point does he or any of his children until the time of Christ serve as king in any way. So it would be not out of the question for him to be identified as an anointed one or a son of oil, but possible, or, but I think unlikely uh, in this case. So if the whole point of the, of the vision is that God is the one who is empowering Zerubbabel, not by might, uh, not by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord to Zerubbabel, then it makes sense what's going on. How is it that Zerubbabel is being empowered? How is it that the people are being encouraged to carry out the purpose of rebuilding the temple, which is, again, what's in view here. We see this uh, discussion in this vision of the fact that Zerubbabel is, has laid the foundation of the house, the temple. He's going to complete it. Well, the context, what has spurred them on to do this again is the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah, who are the mouthpieces of God's spirit to declare the word of the Lord unto the people, to call them to this obedience that they may carry out God's will. Uh, so this is why I would argue that Haggai and Zechariah are better understood as the anointed ones here. Um, 
There's also a, another potential understanding which would um, view this as actually a Trinitarian passage. Uh, I, believe, I, I believe Matthew Henry actually goes in, in this direction or at least suggests its possibility. Uh, but that the two anointed ones are the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, in this case, standing before the Lord. And then we have a picture of the Trinity uh, and them, and they are the ones giving strength to God's people um, in that way. That certainly fits the, the imagery in a certain manner of speaking as well, in that they are, uh, the eyes of the Lord are giving strength to the people, and certainly then we have um, the picture of the triune ministry that's empowering people that way. I think that's more difficult. We don't have, well, Christ certainly would be identified as an anointed one. He is the, the true anointed one. Um, that's a bit harder for the Spirit. You could argue the Spirit is the one who anoints Christ, and so he's, um, it's appropriate to call him sort of anointed one or a son of oil. But um, in any case, I think Haggai and Zechariah is the, is the place to go. But wanted to at least give you a bit of a perspective on where, some go with this and the fact that it's not open and shut as to the exact identity here of all of the elements, even though there's some explanation given. But nonetheless, the main message of the vision is very clear. The Lord is empowering, the Lord is overseeing the work that is being done by Zerubbabel in order to accomplish his purposes. God saw the plight of his people and he sent his prophets to declare his message of grace to strengthen their hands, to do what he commanded. Any questions on this vision, or even the, the previous vision dealing with Joshua? As these, are, these are the heart of the eight night visions. Uh, they're the, lo- the longest of them, and I would argue the most significant out of what is being said in them. So I want to give some time if there's any thoughts or questions about what we've talked about with these two visions in particular. Did you establish last week that the Joshua in reference is the historical Joshua that led his people across the Jordan? Or is it a... No, it's the historical high priest. The high priest at that time was named Joshua. Um, so yeah, it has nothing to do with the, uh, you know, the Joshua who led the people across. That, uh, into the, it was just their... Yeah, the literal high priest was named Joshua, and that's why, at, at the time of Zerubbabel, yeah, and that's why he's, uh, he's ministering as the high priest in the vision, uh, because that is his job. Uh, got an itchy trigger finger. Are you going to pull it? We can go down this rabbit hole, <laughs> but so, so... A couple of Sundays ago. Yeah, we don't have a choice now. He reacted, now I have to respond. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, right, when, when Chris brought up the, the, the trees, the myrtles, and, and we were talking about um, imagery in Revelation versus imagery here in Zechariah, um, could you expand a little bit more of like, are there some good safety guidelines we can put in of when we can make connections and when we can not? Because uh, we're looking at Revelation 11 saying, okay, well, here this looks like it's a good informing because it's talking about two olive trees, and Zechariah is looking at two olive trees. It doesn't mean they're necessarily connected, but 
When, when is it a good time to say, okay, this is, this is a feasible connection versus no, this a good, is a ridiculous connection, do not make this? That's a, that's a good question. Um, yeah, how do we know when to make connections? And so in this case in particular, part of why I'm drawing the connection is because I would say not only is the imagery similar, um, though certainly that's very striking, but also because the context seems to be similar as well. Like the, the, heart of this, the heart of this vision is about the message proclaimed to Zerubbabel. And in fact, most, in, most uh, commentators, when they're talking about this vision, like, find it weird that Zechariah asks for the interpretation of the elements of the vision, and then the angel just says, the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel is this. And they're okay, well, that, he's not really explaining what the things are, and then the explanation comes at the end, uh, which, is, which is true, but I think it highlights the, the fact that the, the main point is the prophetic word that's going out that's uh, empowering what's going, what's going on there in the same way that in the context of Revelation we have the prophetic word, the prophetic ministry that's going out and is uh, what is being effective in that context. So that's, so I think the similar context when we have two different, uh, two different passages that are drawing on similar imagery uh, is helpful. Um, sometimes people just want to take a, an approach that, well, the same word is used, and so therefore it has to be used in the same way in every circumstance. Uh, that is not even close to being true. Just uh, try and, and you can just look in John's gospel and try to look at the different ways the word world is used. Um, if you're trying to make the same, the same meaning fit into every use of it, you're going to, you're going to have a problem. Uh, it has a different significance. <clears throat> What's that? You'll end up in an assembly of God. Yeah. End up somewhere you don't want to be. Um, so... Uh, context really is is king. We want to interpret it in the context in which it's being used. Um, and certainly part of the trick with Revelation in particular is Revelation is intentionally drawing on the imagery that's already been used in the scripture and is using it for his purposes at that time. So not necessarily trying to use it exactly the same, uh, but is is drawing upon that and the people's knowledge of it to then inform their understanding at, at that time. Uh, so um, I, I would say some helpful guidelines is yeah, look, always understanding the context and not being so, uh, not wanting to just shoehorn in something that we find in one place or another. Um, also the principle of using the clearer passage to interpret the passage that is less clear. Uh, is helpful. So if you have one passage that you don't really know what's going on, or it's a, a lot harder to figure out what's going on, maybe you have an idea, but it's just more difficult to figure out, then if you look at another passage that has similar imagery, a similar idea going on in the same kind of context, then being able to use that and make a connection is, um, is something that, that's helpful in that regard. Um, and I had another thing I was going to say, but it's flown out of my brain, so maybe it wasn't very helpful. 
uh, we'll see if it comes back. Um, hopefully, those are a little bit helpful as far as far as guidelines. I think, um, like we, we do want to, we do want to make connections. Like there are there are word plays that go on in the scriptures that are intentional and important that are trying to evoke past ideas that have come up. Um, and so we, we want to be sensitive to that, pay attention to that. Um, we just don't um, yeah, want to fall into the trap of just saying, okay, therefore, this picture can't be built upon and grown out further and further. Like one of the, um, one of the things that we're going to see here in Zechariah is the idea of kingship is going to be united to priesthood in Zechariah, which is something that not haven't been allowed to do. Like we see it in Melchizedek back in back in Genesis, but in the history of Israel, haven't been allowed to do it, and yet God's going to explicitly do it here in, in, in Zechariah. So we're supposed to think of certainly the Davidic kings and understand it in that context, but then there's a building upon it. Um, so I guess... Make connections, certainly, where like, there's intentional connections between imagery in various places. Make the connections, just don't straitjacket passages by what's in, another, what's in another one. Anything else? All right, well, let's go on to the sixth vision which we find in the first part of chapter 5. <clears throat> the last visions, vision 6 through 8, detail how God will deal with remaining sin in the land, uh, primarily the last vision, not necessarily, but close enough. Um, the vision of the flying scroll was a warning to those who are committing iniquity in the land. Uh, so that's what we find, a vision of a flying scroll here in the beginning of chapter 5, where we read, Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width 10 cubits. Uh, just for frame of reference, a cubit is a foot and a half. Uh, this is a very large scroll <laughs> that he's seeing. This is not... This is not something that's small that he's just seeing. Like, this is kind of like a, a, um, a, an airplane banner, fly, but likely flying lower, so it looks a lot bigger in the sky when it's, uh, when it's going through the air. <clears throat> um, then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Uh, so a short vision, uh, but God is removing the iniquity from the land. <clears throat> and what this indicates for us is that the, though there were many who were transgressing against the Eighth and Ninth Commandments, which is specifically what he highlights here, thieves, those who are swearing falsely. Uh, it appears that the rulers of the people had not dealt with these injustices, and sin was allowed to prevail among the people. Uh, the people have been called to be cleansed as they serve the Lord, 
but this still remains in the land and the Lord needs to do something about it. So the scroll that this picture is flying is the law of God declaring his judgments upon those who are committing these iniquities. Uh, as I mentioned, it's abnormally large uh, and flying through the air. And this indicated that this law had been published throughout the land for all to see. Uh, obviously, this was not unknown to the people. They knew what they were commanded to do, what they should have been carrying out, uh, but they would not do it. <clears throat> uh, but also, it indicates that because the judgments... Uh, uh, because of the judgments of the law would extend throughout the land. This is uh, what he then gets into. God is the one who is going to then affect justice. Uh, though the leaders would not take action and deal with this sin that was prevalent in the land, God himself would see to it that those committing these sins would be removed from the covenant community as he continued to restore his people. And this is pictured then further, the seventh vision is very much in keeping with what we find there in the sixth. And the removal of sin from the community is pictured <coughs> very clearly in this vision. Uh, <clears throat> let's read the rest of chapter 5 now. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what is, go what is that is going out. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all, in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wing of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who, walked, who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. <clears throat> so we see this picture, wickedness is pictured as being an, a woman in a basket. Um, if you're looking for the significance of why, there's a, why this woman is wickedness, Likely it's simply because wickedness is a, a feminine word in Hebrew. And so if you're going to personalize it, it's going to be personalized as a woman uh, in that regard. Other than that, I don't have any insight as to why specifically it would be a woman. Um, unless, well, I guess, unless you were to go to something like the proverbial um, adulterous woman in Proverbs that, the, that Solomon is warning his son about throughout Proverbs. Uh, there could be a potential allusion there, but there's not really anything in the context that would necessarily draw us to look at that. Um, in any case, the point is clear enough uh, that though wickedness was present among the people, God would shut it out and would take it away. Uh, he's putting a leaden cover on, on the top of it so that really the idea is too heavy to be removed. Um, and then he has... Uh, two other women, angels, uh, pictured as women in this regard, who are taking away the, the basket. Uh, in particular, where they're taking the basket away is into, since it says the land of Shinar, uh, which is Babylon. Uh, and a shrine is built for her there. Uh, 
Now, this language is interesting, and what this actually then alludes to for us is that um, this is related to the Tower of Babel. This is where we find the the name Shinar, most uh, most famously referenced, Genesis 11, verse 2, where they're building the, tab- the Tower of Babel, which and Babel and Babylon in Hebrew are the same the same word. The the Empire of Babylon was building itself cognitively, consciously out of the uh, inheritance uh, heritage of Babel. <clears throat> um, and so they have the same name. Um, if even if that, there's questions to whether or not they were in the same location, uh, but at the very least they are inheriting the name from them intentionally. <clears throat> um, in any case, this is uh, related to the Tower of Babel, um, and particularly then, as we see, a shrine is being built for this wickedness, which also evokes for us the idea of the Tower of Babel. Uh, for the tower was meant if we remember it, to be the greatest monument to men in their rebellion against God and was, would have served as a pagan temple. We tend to think of towers sort of like you know, the, the Empire State Building or something, something like that, just a tower that's there for no particular reason. That's, uh, that's not how these kinds of things functioned in uh, ancient civilizations. Really what this is is a ziggurat or a, a, a pyramid, uh, if you will, and these were places of worship that were that were given. Um, I think we highlighted going back quite a bit now, uh, but one of the things that was prevalent throughout the ancient Near Eastern religions, and we see it even in the scriptures concerning the way that the people meet with God, is that mountains are the places where you have communion, where you have meetings with gods. Uh, so um, we highlighted that the, the Garden of Eden, uh, as we actually find out from Ezekiel, was on a mountain. Uh, certainly, the people go to meet with God uh, on Mount Sinai. Mount Zion is the meeting place. Uh, and part of what these ancient civilizations would do is they would build these pyramids. Part of the reason we see pyramids in all these different civilizations because this idea continues, and they're building a man-made mountain to go and to worship and to meet with their gods. The Tower of Babel was meant to be that uh, as a monument to themselves to make their name great, as it talks about uh, in Genesis 11. Um, And they're building a mountain uh, to the heavens, essentially to show their opposition to God in a certain sense, but also to ascend to the false gods. Uh, But for their own self-glorification is the idea. And so just as before, in that circumstance, in the Tower of Babel, the nations we see here would seek to exalt themselves against God, but God would preserve a people for himself that were free from this sin as he's removing the sin from the midst of his people. He's placing it in the midst of the nations. They are going to continue their purpose of seeking to exalt themselves against the Lord, giving themselves over to wickedness. But the Lord is cleansing his people uh, that they may serve and honor him. Um, so that's, that's the seventh vision. And uh, do we have time to do the eighth? We'll make a go at it. All right. The eighth vision. 
This vision has an obvious similarity to the first in that it too pictures colored horses that are sent throughout the earth. If you remember in the first vision we have the angel of the Lord who is sitting on a red horse and he, there are many other horses that are being sent to and fro throughout the earth to bring a report of what's going on. Uh, we find a similar thing here in chapter 6 in this final vision. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven, after presenting themselves before the lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country, the white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Uh, So we see the similarities as we look at the vision, but there are also differences. In this case, the angel of the Lord is not pictured explicitly. Likely, he is the Lord of these chariots, but we don't see him identified in the vision. Uh, Also, the horses are not just there by themselves. They are strapped to chariots, uh, and the setting is not among myrtle trees, but is set between two mountains of bronze. Uh, So these chariots and their horses are not pictured as messengers, in this case, going throughout the earth, but as vehicles of war going forth to conquer for the Lord. This is the significance of chariots, Chariots could be used for other purposes, but by and large, they were instruments of war. They represent military might, and that's the idea here. They are going forth to conquer for the Lord. Uh, The four chariots in this vision represent God's power going throughout the world with a particular focus, once again, on the north, representing Babylon. Uh, And the chariots sent to the north set God's spirit at rest there. Uh, and this is in contrast with the, with the first vision in which the, nation, the nations were at rest. Now God's spirit is the one that is at rest because he is taking vengeance on his enemies. Uh, God's spirit is at rest as he exercises his authority over them and brings peace to his people in exile as he gather them, gathers them from the four winds of heaven. Uh, even referring back to a previous vision where he talks about gathering the people from the four winds of heaven. He's now sending uh, these chariots to the four winds to gather his people, to bring them back to himself, but also to execute his will throughout the nation. Uh, And so this is meant to be a vision of comfort to the people. God is bringing rest for himself and his people uh, and the nations will not continue to be, nations that have oppressed them will not continue to be at rest in their sin. Uh, So far, the eight night visions. So that brings us to the end of our time and the end of our notes here, so uh, good timing. We'll uh, we'll pray and we'll go to service. Our Father, we do thank you uh, that you are the God who reveals yourself to us, even uh, in ways that seem strange and difficult for us to understand in many cases, uh, yet you give us 
clear signs and pictures of your grace. You testify to us of your favor and your love, and you call us to a greater trust and obedience to you. And we pray that we would walk in faithfulness to that. We pray that we would indeed be strengthened as we come this morning to hear from your word. We pray that you would instruct us in your truth, that you would guide us in your way. We pray that you would give us the eyes to see Jesus Christ as we are summoned to meet with you. We pray that as we hear his word, as we come to his table, uh, we by true faith would have communion with you and would know the power uh, and peace of your grace and that we would find rest in you from all of our troubles. We pray these things in Christ's name.